You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Welcome back. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio. Learn more about us at www.21stcenturyradio.com. Recently, I was talking with an old college friend, and I said, you know, I had this great meditation the other day, and I saw that we could have these flotillas of barges floating all over the world, growing food and remediating the water. And he said, well, don't you remember the work of the New Alchemy Institute, Dr. John Todd and Nancy Jack Todd? And of course, that is who what we're going to discuss tonight is the work of the New Alchemy Institute. And uh, John and Nancy are both with us. If you recall, we've talked about this in the past, I think in the 1980s, they joined us. In the 1960s, they founded the New Alchemy Institute, which was a small nonprofit research and educational organization dedicated to building, quote, a safe and more sustainable world. So Nancy and John are going to give us a, a view of what has happened since they began their work in Cape Cod. Nancy Jack Todd's most recent book, A Safe and Sustainable World, The Promise of Ecological Design, is an is a island press release, and you can call them for a copy at 1-800-621-2736. You can also go to John and Nancy's website at www.oceanarks.org, among others. And thank you, Nancy. I know you two are going to share a phone tonight, so we'll start with you. Good evening. Good evening. What a wonderful book, and um, what a wonderful tribute to a shared life and a shared vision. I, I read in your book that you and John met in high school, but if you were to, to describe for us some sort of principles that bound the two of you together that remain so today, what, what would those be? Well, I think you've already uh, phrased it very well with the safe and sustainable world. Um when we first met, I was actually much more involved in the peace movement and less in, less involved in environmental ideas. But through our association and meeting a lot of John's colleagues, I began to realize that we could exploit other cultures and the, the natural world equally. And so I became really concerned with creating, not critiquing what we were doing, which um, it's not very rewarding. There are lots of brilliant people doing that. But in trying to experiment with and understand how we could live sustainably on the planet. Which you did, and what you managed to bring to the world was a way of understanding that there is such a thing. And I think John is certainly world-renowned and recently won a beautiful Buckminster Fuller Award for this notion of ecological design. Describe for us, though, I mean, here you were youngsters with very young children, and you had this notion that it wasn't enough just to get your PhD and go teach. You had to, like, use your vision to reimagine how do we live on the land. Were there principles, you, you mentioned other cultures and indigenous peoples, would you say that some of the principles are borrowed from our long-lived, you know, communities around the world? Well, I would think we didn't realize that at the beginning, but came to understand it. We really started by acting totally almost as a gut response, mm -hmm. that we knew the way we were living. This was in the late 60s, was unsustainable. Right. We were living in San Diego, and I could see, you know, I was learning that nitrates 
from fertilizer going into water was harmful to children, particularly babies, and I just had a new baby. I could look out at the horizon in a beautiful California climate and see a rim of brown, because gasoline was still, had added lead in those days, a rim of brown around the horizon that was uh, pollution from from gasoline and um, from the heavy traffic. Right. And there was at one point, children in Los Angeles were told not to run. Mm-hmm. You can't keep children from running. Right. Don't run. The air's bad today. Well, when when you look back at that, I mean, here we are really half a century later, and so many of the yeah, things that... I, feel, I mean, that still catches me off guard, but yeah. Yeah, right. No, I know. We're all getting older. We just don't know it. <laughs> Our, our bodies occasionally remind us that our yes, spirits exactly. get younger, you know, and it's, I have to say, as I started as an activist at 14, handing out leaflets for um, Ralph Nader's acid rain campaign. Oh, really? And I'm now 55, so I myself have been involved in this more than most of my life, and um, it's it's with great joy, at the same time profound um, understanding that it's only because the challenges are so severe that the whole world is being called to the task in a very immediate and conscious way. Absolutely, absolutely. And at last, we're responding. Yes, exactly. So when we look at the New Alchemy Institute, when you founded this on Cape Cod, there weren't really models to look towards. So talk to us about what you built and why you built it and the components you did. And then maybe we'll talk to John a little bit about the whole overarching process of deco design. What we did initially while we were still out in California we attempted through to do the same thing through an academic institution. And we really learned that there was a rule against practically everything we wanted to do. <laughs> what we wanted, so, and I, so we realized we had to go out on our own to be able to experiment really tangibly mm-hmm. with other th- methods other than industrial agriculture, for producing food, for producing food we would now emphasize locally, um, for producing food wholesomely without putting the contaminants of the chemical fertilizers and pesticides into the ground. Right. We wanted very much to um, draw on renewable forms of energy. Um, at the same thing, we wanted to draw those into forms of architecture, which would a, in a northern climate, because that time we'd moved to Cape Cod, um, be able to grow food year-round, which we did in solar-heated greenhouses. So we wanted to draw the renewables into the way we lived in a number of ways and just see if we couldn't reduce the human footprint on the planet considerably, but not reduce the decency of life. Well, and I think if anything, if you look at the, for instance, the horticulture section of your arc on Cape Cod or the fish ponds that you grew and the indoor and outdoor food year round, one discovers not only an elegance, but an absolute beauty in terms of the relationship of labor in and and. Basically, I think of it as sort of revelation out. When when you look at the design overall and the New Alchemy Institute and the work that it's contributed, what do you think you pioneered? Well, definitely the most pioneering work. If you isolate out one form, well, first of all, two things, the combination. Most people just pursued, say, organic food or alternative energy. 
the fact that we combined everything, I think that that was, it was partly because people with such a wide range of interests turned up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first thing. And then the most pioneering work was the aquaculture because it really was initially geared to see whether in countries where there's inadequate nutrition, malnutrition, um, inadequate amounts of food even, were there ways of producing food for people who weren't, weren't strictly vegetarian that would be inexpensive and abundant? And so John and his colleague Bill McCarney began experimenting with raising fish and um, over time developed techniques of doing it so successfully that I understand there is some work now in Africa being done particularly in urban areas where people are interested in growing fish in quantity in small areas. And the reason we chose the African fish, tilapia, was although it thrives on added amounts of protein, it will live on a diet that's largely made made up of algae. So that is guaranteed to be inexpensive for people. Well, it's wonderful. And when you look at the Cape Cod Arc having all of these different components of biodome and the greenhouses and heat restoration and and encapsulation in the houses, and I mean, things that can be applied to housing and designing of cities everywhere. It's not just, you know, a group of hippies got together who had PhDs and they were visionary thinkers. It's what you all... You're so right, Ashley. You're just right on the mark there because... Um, lately, there's so much more emphasis on local food, as you well know. Yes, for good reasons. Absolutely support. But one overlooked component, and we spend time in Vermont, where we are right now, but also in Massachusetts, so definitely a northern climate. Um, the idea of what we called the ARC, or a bioshelter, which is in essence a solar greenhouse, for year-round food production. Right, exactly. It's one that's still not really fully understood, but you know, John had an experiment up here in Vermont where he grew tropical plants in a greenhouse year-round. Now, that was heated, but on, the, in, on Cape Cod, in our greenhouse there in the Ark, we ripened bananas in February with no fossil fuel heat. It was solely solar. Well, one of the things, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, maybe we can talk with John a bit about Absolutely. about this. And thank you so much. I mean, these are just, it's just a wonderful opportunity. I mean, really, I told you in the beginning that you heard, I don't know if John was able to hear that, that this came, our interview tonight came as a result of a discussion I had with a friend of mine who's a geneticist. And I just had this image of these whole floating um, barges for community to grow food and re, re you know, restore the water all over the world and that's when he said well you must know the work you know of <laughs> dr john todd one of john's major hopes he would love to create a barge he would just adore it yeah. he came close several times but the community involved turned away from the idea but now that need is so much greater that's true, and the awareness so much more um, so heightened much more. by by if not the youth, also the elder. You know, it's interesting. We've all lived long enough, thank God, and raised our children, and now have grandchildren, and we are the elders. So those of us really who were in on the ground floor are now sort of on the top floor of our culture, and I think that that's why these things are all sort of coming now to fruition and flower. 
Isn't it wonderful? It is. It really is. It's beautiful when you live long enough to see some of your seeds flower. So we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back, and we'll pick up with John for a bit. I'll hand the phone over to John Thanks so much. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. If you've just joined us, our guests are John and Nancy Todd. Nancy's most recent book, A Safe and Sustainable World, The Promise of Ecological Design, is a 2008 Island Press release. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Angela Anderson. I'm the director of the Climate and Energy Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists. That's www.ucsusa.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Hieronymus. Online with us are John and Nancy Todd. And Nancy Jack Todd's recent book, A Safe and Sustainable World, The Promise of Ecological Design, is an Island Press 2008 release. And online with us now is Dr. John Todd, who is a recognized global leader in the field of ecological water purification, among other things. And out of, I guess one could say, the phoenix rising when the New Alchemy Institute closed in 1991 was Ocean Arcs International. And thank you for joining us, John. My pleasure. And congratulations on what a profound award from the Buckminster Fuller Institute on your design. Um, Would you give us, if you could, the overview of what it is you have been trying to communicate to the world that is finally now being understood? Wow. (laughs) You know how it is in the media. They ask you for your life and your life work in a soundbite. I I could see that. Well, why don't I I specifically address the Buckminster Fuller Challenge, which was uh, um, for the uh, best idea to help save humanity and the planet. And basically, uh, in that particular situation, I focused on the lands of Appalachia, particularly those lands that had been destroyed by surface coal mining and strip mining. And, and, and valley filling, you know, the, the, over a million and a quarter acres have been destroyed over the past few decades. And I tried to envision the way in which that ghastly landscape could be restored in a way that could support a vibrant human community um, that... Uh, was not involved in coal. It was sort of a post-coal uh, scenario. And, uh, and it involved um, using the new field of ecological design, which is, in its simplest terms, is taking nature's wisdom or nature's operating instructions and, and attempting to uh, redesign the landscape in such a way that the scars could be healed and natural resource-based economies could be created. And within that equation, I had to try and figure out what kind of institutional and financial forms would permit this, um, this sort of transformation of the landscape to take place. And it really is the, the, the uh, you know, in a sense, it's the culmination of the research that Nancy describes in her book, A Safe and Sustainable World, and just applied on a broader landscape and, and in a broader scale. And what I did that I thought was most interesting and exciting was to find techniques 
for um, establishing uh, new forests, new environments. I mean, you can't ever take away the horror of mountaintop removal or valley fill. You, that, that, that you can't. But to find ways from modern ecology and ancient techniques to be able to, to heal the landscape. And, and what is most exciting about that is that uh, the techniques that I was interested in and developing could be applied around the world wherever our lands are being destroyed. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it wasn't at all. I mean, and, and because of the breadth, really, and the depth of your work and the applied notion that nature has the answers if we're willing to listen when we yeah. ask the right questions. That's right. And so, you know, it's interesting, another guest of us of ours, um, Dr. Amit Goswami, whom you may know as a quantum physicist, has often talked about that the paradigm shift that's taking place in consciousness reaches into every human endeavor. And the question for all of us is, um, are, are we able to fall in love, I guess, as Lovelock would say, with Gaia? Are we able to reimagine ourselves as lovers of Earth? And certainly you and Nancy and many of the people that you've worked with around the world um, already speak to this in their action. So when when you look at what you all began as youngsters, you know, fresh out of college with your doctorates and you went to build these biodomes and you had living and sustaining life systems that now can be replicated by anyone who chooses anywhere, really. When you look at, for instance, your work on the seas and the ocean arcs of restoring the water. What is it that stands in the way for this going broad scale? I don't know if Nancy told you, but we're having this conversation tonight because recently I talked to an old college friend of mine who's a geneticist, and I said, oh, yeah, I had this wild meditation the other day of seeing these enormous flotillas of gardens on the waters that are not only growing food but restoring, bioremediating the water. And he said, oh, well, you must go talk to Dr. John Todd. Yeah, it's uh, um, actually the 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 image of the floating, uh, the, the technologies that we've created that that are being used in as far far away as China to um, to clean up sewage laden canals in cities. Uh, but the the image is so powerful because um, it is possible that we could create these floating complexes, these restorers, if you will, that, that at the same time as they purify water could, in fact, be producing foods. And, uh, and uh, it, it's, the, it's by incorporating the ecological imagination of, say, the, the salt marsh, if you will, into the design of the systems, um, one is able to do some very exciting things. Uh, for example, in Hawaii, um, through um, uh, my company, Todd Ecological, um, we were able to create a salt uh, water lake that was, um, had a lot of nuisance algae and was being kept pure. It was in a very fancy resort on the, on the big island on the Kona Coast. And uh, the, to, it was very expensive where people were having to pump in all kinds of new salt water to keep it clean. And we designed two restorers, these floating ecologies, if you will. 
and they immediately cleaned up the water. The water became crystal clear, and the sediments on the bottom um, um, began to be digested. And then we said to our client, which is a, a international hotel chain, a well-known one, we said, can we finish the design? And they said, what do you mean? Well, could we add um, a half a million oysters and, uh, and a quarter million Pacific white shrimp and 100,000 uh, edible marine fish into the system to complete our design. And uh, it worked out beautifully. And the chefs, um, the, the, the chefs just got so excited at this, this, um, this uh, water farm, the salt water farm right, right at their door that uh, it really became the focus of the cuisine. And um, uh, to the excitement so when the EPA gave us its Earth Day award it was for uh, combining environmental restoration with uh, with um, um, the idea of food production which is is sort of the larger scale sort of this quantum leap if you will of what you did on the smaller scale at the new alchemy Institute on Cape Cod it, and it, then it in really Canada. is it's the same it's the same kind of thinking uh, imagine for a moment um, if one set the goal of, of, let's say, upgrading the water quality in Chesapeake Bay, maybe to the point where it may have been 100 or 150 years ago, and, and as you know, it was, it was such a bountiful body, um, body of water, the early writings of the earliest settlers, it just boggles the imagination what they saw. True. And... Uh, and picture sort of ribbons, these beautiful ribbons of floating restorers throughout the bay, um, taking nutrients out of the water, in some cases parking them within systems, in other cases like nitrogen, getting rid of it to the atmosphere, um, and at the same time becoming an enormous breadbasket. And even further... Um, we've noticed this with our restorers before, um, that um, they also act like magnets for young baby fish, and so that they would be attracted, a baby fish would be attracted, and it would be um, uh, an extraordinary renaissance of the sports fishing. All of these things are technologically possible. We know that now because we've done it on a smaller scale. And um, <laughs> also... Um, the economy that could be built mm-hmm. would be just amazing. Well, and um, I think, it, what, yeah, again, and again, you know, everybody who's sort of been working on the slow road, which is now accelerating because there's going to be a lot of, um, I guess, high industry dollar turning green, which is to our right. advantage. If we can put in place the right use of that that sort of green energy, if you will. When, for instance, speaking to the Chesapeake Bay, one of the things I was thinking about once I was told of your work and I could go look it up, I had said earlier on some show a couple years ago, I said, wouldn't it be great if we can take all the places where we have this red bloom, this overgrowth of algae that kills the fish, and instead of making it a problem, we use the algae to do something productive to make something else. That is exactly the kind of it's it's a mental head shift. Yes, exactly. If, if you're treating sewage, it's called sewage treatment. If you're treating human waste as a nutrient source to do something positive, then it's called farming. Right. And we need to get from the 
one point to the other in our heads. And and now looking, though, I mean, you, you're really one of these people, and we've had the pleasure on 21st Century Radio and the many other programs I've hosted, Future Talk and others, to really interview mavericks who have stayed the course outside the box for 40, 50 years, <laughs> which is such a joy because there are people in every civilization and in every century who are like this, like yourself and Nancy. Well, you know what Bucky Fuller used to say? If you're uh, if uh, if you're just a few years ahead of the pack, everybody will see what you're doing and find ways of stopping you. <laughs> if you're 30 years ahead of the pack, they'll just think you're crazy and leave you alone. Exactly. And you can get the real work done. Exactly. I found that when I set up a holistic health center 25 years ago, <laughs> and it's now the oldest in America. And everybody at the time, you know, just thought I was nuts. So there you go. So then looking now, though, I mean, the world is is mindful that these things need to be done. You and your team, whether at Todd Ecological or at the Ocean Arcs or at the New Alchemy Institute, what seems to get in the way of this big kickover into mass production? Oh, okay. Um, I think you t- you alluded earlier to the to the the uh, your physicist friend talking about the paradigm shift right. and having to permeate. In fact, um, James Lovelock himself spoke about the time frames for true transitions. I think he put a thirty to forty year transition mm-hmm. time in it. Um, I think what's happening is that you have uh, the first wave of. Innovators. Most of our clients are people who have a green uh, mindset, mm-hmm. but also a strict view of the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So that if if we take um, a waste problem and convert it into a new product solution, we have to be less expensive than any other alternative they're facing, short of not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Or we have to be as we have to be competitive. And as a consequence, uh, our work has pretty much um, been driven by people who come at it with an ethical framework, but who also have to um, make a buck. Sure. And, and where it's hardest for us to innovate, and this makes me very sad because I've worked a lot, is where you have an established community, a town, for example. And that town has a town engineer, and that town engineer is connected to civil engineering regulators, and they, in turn, are connected to a series of consultants. And basically, they take a cautious approach and and make, um, let's say, a, a board of select people or something or um, that kind of thing, they make it very hard for the citizens to make bold, radical decisions because what they want to put their name to is something that's happened in the past many, many times. And so the difference for us has been to launch these ideas has been to go to progressive companies and progressive developers and and also institutions, NGOs that mm-hmm. have um, have real vision, and these are the people that are resulting in the fact that we, you know, have uh, a huge number of projects around the world right now. Uh, we'd like more, 
I, I wouldn't deny and, and that. And are there are there any that you've? I mean, this this like I said, this thing I saw meditation, and I saw it. Not only did I see these floating flotillas growing food and providing income and housing, but they were also oxygenating the water. And I saw these absolutely en- enormous sort of hubs of restoration that. I, I, you know, it's just, I guess I'm naive sometimes in thinking about, well, here's the obvious solution. Gee, isn't the status quo sick of their failures? I, th- I think here's what I think is missing um, in the equation right now. Um, what is needed is um, is somebody who has, is of real means, um, who gets these ideas and says to themselves, I'm going to underwrite this, and no questions asked, I'm just going to underwrite it. Um, you know, and, and that, I think, is what's been lacking from the equation. You're talking it's, about very high finance entrepreneurs with vision. Yeah, yeah, and it's somebody who somebody who's, who has been so successful that they do not need to be successful anymore. They need to be, they need to be bold, you know, say somebody like a Sir Richard Branson or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and when you look, though, you know, these, these are like deep questions. In the same way we have deep ecology, we have deep reflection. And, and I sometimes feel that there's a little piece of the heart that, isn't open yet in our collective consciousness. And it's not just about you and me or a million people who might have already sort of seen the inner relationship between all life and trying to live that way. But yet there's still some little revolutionary little something. I, and I always feel like, what is that little something that's that spark to awaken the heart? Yeah, I, you know, it may be almost in, in, there's another way of viewing this and I'm, I'm not, Saying that I'm right at all. It, what we may be seeing is the is the uh, classic battle. I mean, this sounds very old fashioned between kind of good and evil. No, I think that that's probably true. I don't um, find it old fashioned, by the way. I think it's the, a really uh, element you, of quantum, you know, almost Tolkienian, if you mm-hmm, will, mm-hmm. Uh, battle where where there there are so many of us who love the earth passionately. Um, and, um, you know, some like Nancy who write about it passionately. And, and then there are others who basically are fixated on extracting as much as we can out of the earth as quickly as we possibly can. And, uh, and the hell to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really so ultimately, is. right. That right. The difference between being selfish and selfless and selfless yeah, exactly. doesn't mean you don't benefit being selfless has the greatest benefit, really, in the long run. I used to say that, you know, once people figure out prayer, they'll be praying all the time. <laughs> so so when you then look at, let's go back for a minute to when you began this work, and I saw in Nancy's book, A Safe and Sustainable World, that you two have known each other since high school. Yeah. And so what a, what a joyous working path to have shared. Yeah, when we were kids, we could talk about stuff that, uh, for example, when I was a kid, I was it lived in a very upper middle class uh culture and I was fascinated by farming. And whenever I would talk about farming, people would look at me like I had uh, some uh, terminal disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and but Nancy never did. 
And uh, so, and when she talked about uh, Bertland Russell and possibilities for peace on peace on Earth, I I thought that was pretty damn fine. Well, you know, and it's so Where interesting. Most of our friends, and, sure. Laughed at it. Well, of course, naturally. And but when you look at the integration of your two interests, as she told us a little earlier tonight, in peace yeah. and yours in ecological um, design, it's so interesting now that the peace and environmental movements have are merging, and these yeah. communities of people who have this heart for integration and unity um, are now, you know, wonderfully bringing that together what what when you look around the world at all of your models is there one in particular you'd like to tell our audience about that they can follow up on that might be applicable to any watershed area well you know what i there there the way i want to tell this story before we turn this back to nancy is is there's a little greenhouse in vermont where my students are at work uh, in in my ecological design class, and inside this greenhouse are there, there's 71 students, and there are about 20 little what we call eco machines or ecological machines, and um, and in that um, in that room are 70 people who are beginning to see for the first time how nature organizes, how nature self-designs, how Mm -hmm. nature replicates, how diversity is essential, how all the kingdoms of life must be present for there to be a whole. They're learning learning on so many different levels. They're learning on an intellectual level, they're learning on a philosophical level, and they're learning on a gut level um, to, to have hope because some of them are taking and putting nasty chemicals in uh, to each each team has one that's a control and another eco machine to which they're applying some kind of stress. Is this at the University and of Vermont? And they're putting everything in, everything ranging from uh, 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 cleaning chemicals to birth control pills. They're doing they're doing everything. Interesting. And uh, and what's so interesting in there is that they're now becoming engaged in complex nature mm-hmm. on a desktop, if you will, level, mm-hmm. um, there is a, an educational eco-machine manual that's available. I see that. I just clicked on it. And, and, and that is, it, it, first of all, it's, it's wonderful. The illustrations are by some of my most creative students, one Colombian and another from Maine. And, uh, and it it's a way for almost anybody to get started. And what you have on your desktop or in that greenhouse at the University of Vermont um, is, is the beginning of an exploration of the potentiality that is out there if we are ever to enter a, an ecological age in which... Um, which the human family becomes in harmony with the natural world to the mutual benefit of both. Amen. And uh, 
So that's where I would start rather than look at any of my, mm-hmm. any of our big projects. Well, and I, and I think that as an educator and as a pioneer, we eventually understand that, you know, first we look at our good works in the world and they're massive and mighty sometimes, but it really is those individual seed pods of other humans who get inspired each generation who carry the baton and go forward. So you've really spoken like a true pioneer that has watched the garden grow. We're going to take a little break, John, and we're going to come back and talk to Nancy a bit more about her recent release, A Safe and Sustainable World. And if we don't get a chance to speak again tonight, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. I mean, how how enlightened you are what a program we've been we've been you know like like you and many others my husband and i started in radio together in the 80s he's a little older than me he's in his late 60s and oh, um i this always makes me the child among us because i'm always going to be 10 years younger <laughs> <laughs> You know, a woman likes that. It's a perfect design. Exactly. (laughs) Don't go away. You can make all the mistakes happily. Oh, well, this is right. Thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) I'll have to remind Bob of that. Oh, yes, I'm joyfully making my youth mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. We'll be right back again. John and Nancy Totter with us. Learn more at www.oceanarks.org and be inspired. I'm Father Paul Mayer. I work for the environment, and I'm the co-founder of the Interfaith Moral Action on Climate Change, interfaithactiononclimatechange.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio, hosted by Dr. Zahara Hieronymus, a wonderful interviewer who has brilliantly supported the issue I have devoted my life to, which is climate change and healing our planet. We're back, and we're turning now to our guest. And uh, while John didn't tell you, there's over 80-some bioremediation plants around the world that they have installed. There's also these other wonderful designs for echo parks that literally take all different kinds of waste and turn it into food processing. Nancy, I understand you're back with us. I am. And um, John was gracious enough to tell us about some of the things he's doing at the University of Vermont and elsewhere. But with a little bit of time left, when you then look at a younger generation of people who now actually get degrees in these kinds of things, you just don't have to go off shelf to do it anymore. Are there things you see happening that concern you? And are there things you see that um, really bring a great deal of joy? Well, I would say I think we're at a great turning point. What has concerned me, not among the young people, but generally is the past eight years of absolutely pretending these problems don't exist and, in fact, exacerbating them. Yes. Now I am sensing a complete change uh, with the design of a green economy and lots of green jobs so that I think that these young people, whereas before we worried where would they find work? Because it was such an uncomprehending uncom- right. world they were going into in terms of business and government. But I think that is changing dramatically now. And among the young people, no, I am, if anything, only heartened. I don't see... Now, this is okay. I have to say there's a sharp divide here. Um, the, the, the kids in natural resources and environmental design, ecological design, say when they try to explain what they're doing to the people in the other disciplines, Mm -hmm. and they don't get it at all. Mm -hmm. So I think that the biggest problem I see is their 
difficulty in communicating with their peers who aren't part of the same uh, the same discipline. That's interesting because I've interviewed so many different scholars from so many different fields over the years, most of them mavericks, and we've often talked about the challenge of language, that disciplines have their own language, and sometimes in academia it gets very sophisticated and esoteric. And I said, well, why can't we all just use very simple language to describe what we're doing in ways that other people can touch, you know? Oh, oh I think you're exactly right, and what that's what we've done. And I, as a writer, have attempted to do and integrate it into what we talk about is keep it from getting there. are a few terms like bioshelter, mm-hmm. but beyond that, it really is perfectly easy to understand. We're not in this to, we're, the whole point is to communicate. Exactly. Not to have a tight little discipline that nobody else understands. No, and I think because, like Buckminster Fuller, who came to when you first opened your biodome at the New Alchemy Institute, and how fitting now, so many years later, to be awarded from the Buckminster Fuller Institute. Um, when when you look at the language you've used in your wonderful book, A Safe and Sustainable World: The Promise of Ecological Design, you do make it so that it's patently clear this is a, um, a lifestyle for the world. This is not. It's not sophisticated science in the sense that it takes sophisticated scientists to understand the systems, but the application of it requires um, an appreciation from all of us to know that, yes, this is the right thing. It is, and it's also extremely enjoyable. And what the, the various systems do, for instance, if we're talking about some of the um, solar greenhouses, and a lot of us have one attached to our house, which not only adds sunlight and warmth, but also a place to grow some of one's own food. They're such a pleasure. They're pretty. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned beauty. I was talking to a very well-known graphic artist recently, and we were talking about how I must be very old-fashioned. I'm a photographer, and I do it because I get such ecstatic joy of beauty through the lens. And he said, you are decidedly old-fashioned. <laughs> but but you brought that up, and, and I really believe that, that our culture, once it appreciates that beauty is the integration of opposite forces, and beauty is truth, really, ultimately beauty is Absolutely, truth. Absolutely, yes, Keith said exactly and and so when you this the book is is just a tremendous addition to other books you've written with john one included tomorrow is our permanent address i love that from echo cities to living machines um is there something you're working on currently that you'd like to tell our audience about well yes i am but i think what i what i'm actually i have the book well partly written and fairly well articulated in my mind. What I want to do is write a book that is probably more personal. So it's less about the work of our various organizations, but more uh, mine and Johnson mine and other friends mine, sort of deep experiences of connection with the natural world where, you know, well, just, Suddenly you feel so much part of it that yes. it's not a sort of it and me, right. but we are one. It is that way. Very connected. Mm-hmm. But I want to make it, I don't want it in any way to be preachy. I want it to be, so, to share some moments I've had, wonderful connection. How wonderful. And um, so it would be more personal in that sense. Um, and, you know, it would have, um, yeah, it would be a personal recounting. And so then... Obviously, it would also, too, 
um, involve some of our experiences through New Alchemy, where I learned so much, you know. Oh, it's so beautiful. And as an artist with an appreciation as you do for so many different mediums, obviously those of us, I'm also an artist. And um, I've often, even as a child, remember thinking about what the trees were telling me. And of course, you oh, didn't go yeah. around telling others that. But yeah. <laughs> so that, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both for taking time out of what I know is a, a schedule that has its sunrise and sunsets. And well, it's um, such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure being with you both. Please thank John for me. And again, Nancy Jack Todd's current book, A Safe and Sustainable World, The Promise of Ecological Design. It's an island press release. And thank you all for being part of 21st Century Radio.